Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We've been in this journey um, through the book of Ephesians, and um, it's sort of a running joke about how long this is taking, but I actually felt convicted by God this week that we need to stop just making excuses for how long this is taking and just allow ourselves to sit under the Word of God and absorb everything we can from it. Um, So quite literally, uh, we are starting where I read in verse uh, chapter 1, 19 to 23, but in actuality, we're going back to verse 3. From verse 3 to the end of verse 23, it, it is like a tour de force of theology, of under, there's so many huge, huge things that Paul is unpacking and One of the things that as I've been meditating on uh, Ephesians and continue to, and specifically some of these verses I've been meditating on for like a year solid, trying and just simply asking God to teach me about them. There's things that we can read in commentaries which are good. There's things that we can understand by dipping into the original language and figuring out some of the structure and grammatical kind of this and that, but there's things that actually can only come to us by the Holy Spirit's revelation. Is actually what Paul describes in Galatians when he said the, the what I have received from God, I received from no man. He's addressing the other disciples and he's saying, look, you didn't teach me about this. This isn't even a product of my whole life studying and memorizing the Old Testament. And in fact, Paul, shortly after he gave his life to Jesus, went into the wilderness for three years. For three years, he was off the grid, out of, you know, like as far out of civilization as you could be, and for three years, God was teaching him and reformatting his brain and his understanding of scripture. Now that he was a follower of Jesus, he needed some reformatting. And so there's things that obviously we learn from really smart people that have gone before us. There's things as a, as a church, we, we value biblical and community hermeneutic, which means that we allow each other to speak into each other's life and help strengthen our understanding of the word of God. But some of this stuff I've been sitting on for a long time, and I'm a little bit nervous to even talk about it because I feel like I still know nothing. <laughs> I still am so small when it comes to my understanding of God's word, but we're going to do our best today to work through some things. I was listening to a a scholar in the last few weeks, and he made a really good point as we're studying the scripture. Often we talk about understanding the context, and um, he argued that, that actually we need to understand the contexts with an S on the end. 
So when we're taught to study the Bible, if you've ever gone to any kind of Bible study class or you've been taught to study the Bible, oftentimes they say you've got to know the context, which is true. So often we say the context are the verses that immediately precede it and follow it. So you, you got to understand what else is happening in the text right around it. That's one context that we need to understand. And other people say you need to understand the historical context, the geographical context, the, the history of what's taking place. And that's very true. We need to understand that context as well. But there's another context that we need to understand, and it's not just the original language information, although that's very helpful, because the Bible wasn't written in English. That's uh, just a true statement. King James didn't write the Bible, just FYI. Um, the Bible was written in other languages. We need to understand them, but there's this additional context that we're going to do our best today, I'm, I'm gonna to do my best to try and bring us into this context. And this is the context of the ancient worldview. The Bible, although it is for us, was not written to us. We have a very narcissistic view of faith here in North America, where we just believe everything is about us. Like everything in the Bible is about me personally and for me and whatever. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. The Bible is an ancient book written over really thousands of years. And it was written to people who lived in a totally different cultural reality and had a completely, a wildly different worldview than we do. We read the Bible as moderns, post-enlightenment people. But I'm going to suggest to you today that that's actually a, a limitation and a hindrance in our understanding of Scripture. That for all of the great things the Enlightenment brought, it had catastrophic consequences in our spiritual life and understanding Culturally, actually, even in society, I think we're actually living through some of the catastrophic implications of the Enlightenment now. So we've ele elevated this humanistic, rational thinking, this, this lens over Scripture that views the Bible as an academic uh, sort of m source book when it never was written or intended to be. And specifically, this letter that we're reading today from Ephesians was not written to be an academic dissertation from Paul. This was a letter written to his friends who shared a very similar worldview to him. So the things that he just glosses over and the things that he sort of kind of doesn't really explain would have been readily understood to his reader. And the reason we need to study it is because we need to intentionally adopt a different worldview. And I'm going to be talking about some things today as it relates to that worldview um, that you might find challenging. I do, some of them. But that's okay. Jesus is a big boy. The Bible can stand on its own, and we don't need to protect it from anything. And I don't need to protect you from anything. <laughs> I don't need to censor what the Bible says. And so we're going to dip into some ideas today that might really actually, uh, you might think they're super cool. You might totally disagree with me. 
Um, that's okay all around. I'm comfortable with that. In the first, uh, these verses that I've mentioned today, Ephesians 1 from verse 3 to 23, 14 times I went through and I kind of highlighted this and counted this. 14 times, including the verses I read to begin this morning, 14 times Paul references the supernatural. 14 times, whether directly or indirectly, Paul is not speaking about the earthly plane of existence. Paul is referencing a supernatural kingdom reality 14 times in those verses. In those 19 verses, 14 times, Paul is lifting us out of our normal reality. And he's saying there's something bigger going on. He's reminding his friends in this church, and really the book of Ephesians was written to be passed around to all the other churches too. He's reminding his friends, hey, look, as you're kind of getting overwhelmed with life and as you're digging into the monotony of the day-to-day and as you're kind of doing this and that and the other thing, remember that there's a bigger picture at play that what you're experiencing in the physical and in the here and now, what you experience in your families and what you experience in your jobs and the things that are crushing in on you and the pressures that are weighing down on you, yeah, they're real, but there's a larger reality that I wanna speak to. And so 14 times in these verses, Paul is lifting them out of kind of our humanistic, materialistic, non-divine thinking and saying there's a reality that we need to be aware of. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm gonna introduce a a phrase, I didn't coin it, but we're gonna talk today about something called cosmic geography. And as Paul lifts the Ephesians, before he even works into the meat and potatoes of the rest of the book, this is like elementary things for them because they they had this worldview that there was a supernatural spiritual realm that actually interacted with everyday life. The ancient Near Eastern nations and people groups and the Christians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Hebrews of the first century all lived with an acute awareness that there was a supernatural realm and that that supernatural realm had influence and cause and effect in everyday life. That the two were enmeshed and intertwined and you can't separate them. So this is the worldview that Paul is approaching his friends with. And he's reminding them, look, there's things in the spiritual realm that you need to be aware of. Fourteen times he makes reference to that in these verses. I'm going to jump with you to Ephesians 1 verse 3. This is kind of, like I said, we're going to go back. I'm treating, as Pastor Alex mentioned in the last couple weeks, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is literally in the original language. It's a a long run-on sentence. And so we're kind of mashing this whole second half of the book or of of chapter 1 of Ephesians together, and we're going to be sort of talking about it in bits and pieces. 
But Ephesians 1 verse 3 is where we're going to begin this conversation. Paul says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, in your versions, you may see words like predestined in there and chosen. Um, I actually, I really debated this um, of whether we were going to really dive into kind of this look at um, this theological spectrum in the church uh, and this question of whether does God choose me or do I choose God? There are these kind of figureheads um, in Christianity that for th this debate has been raging for thousands of years and certainly today we're not going to bring it to a nice smooth landing here. It's been raging and raging. Do I choose God or does God choose me? Is my life a product of predestination or free will? What happens? Do I follow this guy Calvin or am I an Arminianist? What do I choose? What do I do? And I actually believe that Paul is bringing the Ephesian uh, readers further up than this. That's still a conversation of doctrine that gets caught in the weeds. But we're going to see Paul actually brings it up further than that. Paul is working on a cosmic plane that is bigger than whether you theologically side with John Calvin or you're an Arminianist. There's probably a spectrum in here of both of you, and that's great, that's fine. There's room for that. But Paul is actually ascending even higher than that. He's actually talking about something much larger than that. First off, as Paul addresses them, he says, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna stop there for one minute. Our understanding of God the Father and Jesus Christ are essential to our Christian faith, are essential to life. But I wanna, again, I wanna elevate our understanding from like just Jesus the man who came on this earth and lived and died and uh, you know, he forgives my sins and all of that stuff, which is all true. But I, I believe what Paul is doing, he's elevating the conversation to the heavenly realm. And he's saying, look, in the heavenly realm, there's spiritual structure. I'm gonna show you a little chart. This is like a very, 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 very rudimentary chart that explains these uh, three levels of hierarchy in the spiritual realm. So if you guys can show that. So what Paul is talking about here as he addresses God the Father and Jesus Christ, is this top tier of hierarchy in the spiritual realm. We're gonna talk a little bit about that today and we're gonna talk a little bit about the second one because it's different than you might think it is. Paul is addressing a spiritual reality for the Ephesian believers and for us that it actually can transform and change our lives if we will allow it to. 
So Paul mentions in these first few verses that there are spiritual blessings in heavenly places for us. And we've talked a little bit about them. I'm not going to go through a lot of them in detail, but I want to kind of bring you to the first blessing in heavenly places that Paul talks about, and that is number one, adoption. That not just on this earth and not so that I can feel good and not so that, you know, I, I, I feel confident and, and self-assured and all of that stuff. But there is an exchange that happens when you give your life to Jesus, when you accept the work of Jesus. There is something that happens in the supernatural realm called adoption where Yahweh, the God at the top of that pyramid says, I now call you sons and daughters. You're no longer orphaned. You're no longer fending for yourself. I, Yahweh, am adopting you into my family. From a spiritual, large, large, large perspective, God is saying, I'm welcoming you into my family. And Paul here, as he addresses the Ephesians, he's saying, remember that Jesus is God that there is a triune relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that sits at the very top, at the very apex of everything in the spiritual realm and everything in the physical realm. So when God adopts us, that blessing is found in heavenly places because it is from heavenly places that we have adoption and it's from heavenly places that adoption works itself out through our life. Paul is bringing them way up, way up into the stratosphere here. And he's saying, look, the first thing I want to remind you of is that you're adopted. And you're not adopted by this little Greek God here, or you're not adopted by Zeus or this pantheon of gods that the, they would have understood and have followed. You're not adopted by this idol that's sitting on your countertop. You're not adopted by Diana, this, this goddess that you're worshiping. You're adopted when you give your life to Jesus. You're adopted by Yahweh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible calls him the most high. So when we give our life to Jesus, when you surrender your life, repent of your sins and acknowledge your need for Jesus, invite him to be Lord of your life, you are spiritually transferred into that top tier pyramid as a son or daughter. We are not God, so that's not what I'm saying. We don't occupy the same characteristics as God. We are not God, but he calls us sons and daughters of himself. He gives us his name. I was reflecting on this just the other day that So often we're, we're looking to, to Christianity or to faith to provide us blessing and benefit on this earth. Like, God, if I'll follow you if it improves my life in some way, if it improves kind of what's going on. And we look to these superficial self-help kind of methodologies for improving our life and, and trying to kind of place the blessing and benefit of God into our life in these very humanistic ways. But I believe that when Paul is saying there's 
blessings from God in heavenly places. He's saying you need to go into the spiritual places to pull them down and bring them from heaven to earth. That you need to actually live in spiritual places in your life. You need to live on your knees in prayer. You need to live in the word of God. You need to live in relationship with God if you wanna access the blessing and the benefit of God in your life and through your life, you need to spend time in the presence where those blessings and benefits are found. That it's in that place that these blessings are stored up for you and I. And it's in that place that the Bible says that we actually have been given the right to enter into the throne room, the very presence of God as his sons and daughters. He's given us the right through the blood of Jesus to come into his presence. And when we're in his presence, everything we need for life and godliness is found there. It says in 2 Peter, Everything you need for your life today is found in the presence of God, but you've got to go to the presence of God if you want to experience it. And so often we have this dysfunctional and backwards view of Christianity, like God just bless me now, I just, I want to experience your blessing now, but I'm not willing to go to your presence to get it. I'm not willing to pray for my kids to see it. I'm not willing to surrender my finances to you and tithing to see your blessing. I'm not willing to go to the places where your blessing resides. And Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers, I believe, that in order to access the spiritual blessings of God, it needs to be in the heavenly places that they go. He didn't say he's blessed you with spiritual blessings found in the Starbucks parking lot as you drive through. As much as I would love that, it's not where he's saying it's found. I'm going to move on. In these, just, uh, I don't want to get into the theology of it, but um, right in these few verses, we see that the Father is the God of Jesus. Jesus on the cross, right? What does he say? My God, my God, why do you forsake me? So there's this interrelationship between Jesus and the Father, where the Father is God to Jesus. God the Father referred to Jesus as God. Hebrews 1.8. Let's just read that really quickly, just so we have a little bit of context here. But to the Son, this is speaking of God, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. So the Father is God to Jesus. God the Father refers to Jesus as God. And Jesus says in John 14 that the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what Paul is just reminding them of is the triune relationship between God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into play a few verses later. That that is the eternal King of Kings, the Most High God, is this mysterious relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they alone sit at the top of the spiritual realm and kingdom. The Bible is very clear that God has no equal, there is none like him. There's nobody above him. 
I want to move on. This set of verses, I'm just going to try and stick to my notes here so that I can actually get through them. This set of verses here is a great reminder and I believe a teaching lesson for us in these principles of spiritual authority. We talk about them a lot in our church, but this is actually an outworking of principles of spiritual authority. In order to understand spiritual authority, we need to have a greater glimpse and a a picture of what's happening in the heavenly realms and in the heavenly places. I'm going to get you to turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Psalm 82. This has really been one of those sections that's been really rocking me as I am reading this. So in Psalm 82, um, I'm going to get you to throw up that graphic of the pyramid again. In Psalm 82, we're going to be introduced to not only the top tier, but the top two tiers of the spiritual realm and the spiritual kingdom of God. Psalm 82, 1 to 8. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. Okay, I'm just gonna stop there. Already in this one verse, we have two instances in the original Hebrew of the word Elohim. In Hebrew, we often associate the word Elohim with God, Yahweh, which is right and truthful. But when the writer of Psalm 82 introduces these spiritual beings that are around the presence of God, he uses the same word Elohim. In the original syntax and grammar of it, when he mentions God as Elohim, it's a singular, meaning that he alone is God. When he mentions Elohim the second time, it's plural. So First thing that we need to understand is we, this is a huge mind grenade for us that we need to flip on. When we read scripture, Elohim is used many times in scripture to refer to God or gods. Elohim, better understood as a definition, is not the definition of the specific character and attributes of God himself, but the best definition of Elohim means spiritual or heavenly being. So Elohim is used, actually the word, I don't know if you remember this or you've heard this story, um, in the Old Testament when King Saul goes to the witch at Endor because he's in real big trouble and Samuel has died and he, he actually goes to a medium which was forbidden by God to do, but he goes there anyway. And this medium says, what do you want me to do? And Saul says, I want you to call up the spirit of Samuel the prophet. And she's used to kind of like pulling the wool over everyone's eyes, so she goes through her thing. And lo and behold, the spirit of Samuel, the prophet, actually arrives. The medium is freaked out because this has never happened before in this way. But when she says she saw a son of God and referring to Samuel, she uses the word Elohim. That's what's used in the original text. So we see in this spiritual realm that God, Yahweh, the Most High, occupies this role that is uncontested. 
that is unrivaled. He shares attributes that no other spiritual being shares, but that he has these other Elohim that are around him, these spiritual beings that he's placed around him. Some theologians and scholars call it his divine counsel. So we see here that God is in a conversation with these other members of a divine created order by God that are called his counsel. He says, how long will you hand, and he's talking to this counsel right now. He's talking to these spiritual beings that are around him. Verse two, how long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. He's saying, what you're doing, we're gonna dig into this. But what you're doing, I'm not happy about. How you're exercising your spiritual authority and all of this stuff, I'm not pleased with what you're doing. Because of your poor and helpless, because the poor and helpless deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors knew nothing, they are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I say, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. He's calling these spiritual beings his children. Just let that blow your mind up for a minute. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. And then we have this incredible verse, actually, Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. That word rise up in the original language is the same word used for resurrection. The author is prophetically actually speaking to something that is yet to take place and using resurrection language to do it. So here's what I want to propose to you. Paul is establishing for the Ephesians that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are Yahweh, uncontested, all rule and authority, but there's other gods that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit as the triune God have actually created. And they have a function on this earth and in the spiritual realm. This is so important for us to understand. I want to read to you um, just a quick story, 1 Kings 22. This is a story again from the Old Testament. The king of Israel approaches the king of Judah and he's asking for his help in fighting a battle. The king of Israel invites his prophets to speak into the situation and they all go big thumbs up, but they're liars. They actually haven't asked God about it. So the king of Judah says, you know what, can we get a real prophet in here somewhere, like somebody who actually knows what they're talking about? And so the king of Israel says, yeah, there's one, but I hate him because he always says bad things about me. And so he goes, all right, just call him in anyway, and let's see what he has to say. First Kings 22. Um, he calls him in, and this prophet of God that he doesn't like has some really interesting to say, things to say. This prophet Micaiah told him, verse 17, 
1 Kings 22:17. Then Micaiah told him, in a vision I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. Didn't I tell you, the king of Israel exclaimed to Jehoshaphat, he never prophesies anything but trouble for me. So he's complaining about what this prophet has told him. Micaiah continued, listen to what the Lord says. Okay, get this. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him, on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who can entice Ahab, that's the king of Israel, who can entice Ahab to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? There were many suggestions, and finally a spirit approached the Lord. Read that again. Finally, a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. How will you do this, the Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. Wow. Okay, so there's this fascinating conversation taking place in God's throne room somewhere in the spiritual realm where Yahweh, the most high God, says to his other God council members, this is what needs to happen on the earth. How should we do it? And he allows them to speak into what is happening on the earth. He's in control. He makes the decisions. But he allows them to speak into and influence the direction of life on the earth. This is what is happening all the time in the spiritual realm that we're completely oblivious to, but these are the realities that the first century Jews and Greeks and other people were acutely aware of, that there's things going on in the spiritual realm that we don't understand, that unless we actually develop a spiritual, heaven forbid, a spiritual nature to our Christian life, we're going to be oblivious to the things that God is actually inviting us to do and to steward on the earth. When Jesus said that he came to bring the kingdom of God to the earth and that where he was present, the kingdom of God was present, it wasn't just a nice colloquialism. It was the actual reality that Yahweh, the host of heaven, the Lord above all lords, was down on the earth and his domain is where he is. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians, look, when you've given your life to Jesus, you're adopted by Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. And where you are, his kingdom is present. And so you need to stop thinking about everything from such a humanistic, materialistic standpoint and actually develop a spiritual life. What God is not inviting you and I to is self-help. Deepak Chopra can't help us. Oprah can't help you. Self-help improvement won't help you. You need a spiritual answer to a spiritual question and problem. And this is what we see happening in the heavenly places and what Paul is reminding the Ephesians of is you need to live in the spirit if you actually want to walk out the calling of God in your life, there's things that he's called you and I to that we cannot and will not do if we don't operate our spiritual life spiritually.
And there's so much more. If you want more, there's like, I've got so many peer-reviewed dissertations on this stuff that I can send you. It's like my brain was just exploding in mush about it. If you want more information, just email me and, um, and I'd be happy to give this to you. But this is the reality, that there's things taking place in the spiritual realm that we don't understand but are a reality nonetheless. Here's Paul's worldview. He would have walked into the city of Ephesus in the first century, approached some random guy in the street, got to talking about his life, and this random guy would tell him uh, and express to him all of the deities that he followed and all of the prescriptions for worshiping these other gods, all of the things on his mantle on his fireplace. He'd go through and he'd say, I worship this God for that, and this is the God of Ephesus, and this is what we do here, and this is what I do here, and, and, and I don't want to upset any of them, so I just spend my whole life trying to appease the gods. This was the reality that Paul lived in, and the, the truth is that he would have walked in, and he would have went, yeah, you're right. There is a supernatural deity governing this city and this region geographically. We're going to read about it in one sec. Paul would have went, yeah, you're right. There is that. But there's this guy, he's called the Most High God. His name is Yahweh, and his son was Jesus, and he sent his son to earth in human form and in flesh. And as God, he lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death on a cross, shed his blood so that you and I could be redeemed, that we could actually be elevated above sort of the, the dysfunction and the pressing and crushing of the gods. Paul knew full well the weight and the pressure they felt and experienced. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 11, 1 to 9. You with me? You good? We only have three hours left here, so don't worry. <laughs> who has Thanksgiving plans? I mean, who does that? <laughs> just joking. Brandon is just freaking out right now. All right, I'm just joking. Sort of. We may have to do a part B, C, D. This is why you stay in one verse for like 19 weeks because there's so much to say. All right. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Some of you know this story. I don't know how much we're going to get into this, but if you asked in the ancient Near East or in first century, if you asked uh, a Jewish person why the world was the way it was, why is there so much pain, dysfunction, brokenness? Why is the world so broken? Um, they would have, I think, a slightly different response than we do. We would say it's because of the fall, which is true. They would say it's because of three primary spiritual rebellions. The spiritual rebellion we read about in Genesis 3, which is the Garden of Eden one. There's a second one in Genesis 6, where the sons of God come down and actually have intercourse with the women of the area, which just on an aside, you want to know how serious sexual immorality is to God? Just read that. You'll know exactly what you're dealing with spiritually and why our, our whole 
planet is under bondage to it. But, uh, and the third rebellion would be this one here. Genesis 11. At one time, so let me just give you a, a brief second of context here. So God creates the earth, Adam and Eve, puts them in Eden, and says, I've given you an assignment. It's to live in relationship with me and to subdue the earth. I want you to be my image bearer. I want you to image me on the earth. I want you to carry authority, obedience, relationship all over the earth. I want you to bring this earth under my rule and reign. Of course, we know that that didn't work out so well. So things get bad and then they go really bad really quickly when these spiritual beings actually come down and intermingle with humans. And God says that wickedness was so bad, he regretted even making the earth. And that's where we find this account of Noah. At the end of the Noah story, God says, I want to reestablish my design with you. I want to reestablish my plan. Noah, he, God gives Noah the same mandate that he gave Adam and Eve. Subdue the earth, rule and reign as my sons and daughters. Take authority and control the earth. But they somehow think they know better. So here we find ourselves at the Tower of Babel. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. This is post-flood. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Uh, it's pretty well unanimous. Scholars believe the tower that they were trying to create is called a ziggurat. And that was actually attached to a temple. And the tower had a very specific purpose. And this is what angered God so much about what they did. The tower had a very specific spiritual purpose. Their building of this tower was specifically because this tower was like an antenna beacon from earth, a place that they were intending to call God down to the earth. This specifically, again, we gotta get into their worldview. This specifically was a place that they were building to call God down to earth, to commune with things in the spiritual realm. And God said, no, 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 no. I gave you a mandate under my name and under my authority to sub subdue and rule on the earth, not to gather together and tell me what to do. Isn't that a little bit reminiscent of our lives today? Like, God, you come and you bless me at my beck and call. God, you're here for me. God, my faith is for me, for my benefit and my blessing. And these people built this ziggurat, this spiritual place of worship because they did not want to follow through with God's call on their life. And he says, no, 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 that's not how this works. And this is what happens. The Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. Who's he talking to? We're going to find out. After this, nothing they say 
or do will be impossible to them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand. And that way the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. I want you to turn with me as an explanation to what is happening in the spiritual realm to Deuteronomy 32. It's a few books over. There's a lot of scholarly debate about this, but we're going to go for it. 32 verse 8. When the Lord, so this is speaking of this event we just read about in Genesis 11. When the Most High, that's God, that's Yahweh, assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly courts. Your Bible may say actually of the sons of Israel, which is not a good interpretation of the original Hebrew there for lots of reasons, but we're not going to get into that. The uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the oldest living manuscript that we have of the Old Testament, actually renders that sons of God. So here's this scene where man on the earth has decided to rebel. They build this temple and God is talking to this council in the spiritual realm. And he says, this is not my heart or my will for this earth. And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide up the earth and I'm going to give you, there are 70, I'm going to give you 70 council members in my spiritual court authority over specific jurisdictions. And so from that point on, God divided up the earth with spiritual, as Paul says, authorities, rulers, principalities, over different parts of the earth. This is a worldview that Paul would have been very familiar with. And so as he walked into Ephesus, he would have understood that way back in history, when man tried to build a temple, a ziggurat, to call down God, to be at his beck and call, God assigned to the earth, he disinherited the earth at that time. What is so amazing, What is so incredible is that chapter 12 of Genesis, God already has a plan in motion. What happens in chapter 12 is he calls Abraham in this same foreign land, now controlled by a lesser God. God says, I'm going to take Abraham and I am going to redeem what I started. I am going to redeem my original design on this earth. And he calls out Abraham and he says, the best part of it is he can't even have kids. He has to supernaturally have my help to actually be the inheritance and the seed bearer for everything I want to do on the earth. And then one day from this nation, the savior of the world is going to come. So right in this scene where God disinherits the whole earth, where he places the whole earth under the rule of lesser gods, he says, no, I have a plan for this. The earth is not going to go to hell in a handbasket on my watch. My plan is good and I'm not giving up on it. 
I'm not giving up on the people that I've made in my image. I'm not giving up on the suffering and the nonsense that's caused from these rebellious gods around me. I'm not going to give up. I have a plan. His name is Abraham, and he establishes it immediately after this. God's got an idea for the rescue of civilization and the world. Man, there's so many other verses we could read. So what does that mean in practical reality? Here's how I want to land this plane. I want to read you one more story. We've, you may have read this in Sunday school. It's quite a funny story. We read it because it is funny, and it is very funny. But it actually speaks a lot to what we're talking about here today. First Samuel 5. 1 to 5. So this is later on in Israel's history. The ark of God, which was a symbol for the presence of God and literally was the very presence of God, is stolen by the Philistines. 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 5. After the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. Hmm. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. That was interesting, they probably thought. What a coincidence, maybe not. But the next morning they came and the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord again. This time his head and his hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. <laughs> Only the trunk of his body was left intact. I want you to read this next verse very carefully. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod will step on its threshold. Why? Because Yahweh, the King of kings and the Lord Most High, has now claimed that territory for himself. In the midst of enemy territory, this God, this idol of Dagon, falls face down before the God of the heavens and the earth, the Lord, the Most High God. And that ground is now claimed for the presence of God, and the priests of Dagon know it. They know that that ground is no longer held under enemy territory. The story of Naaman the leper in the Old Testament, another fantastic story. He's a, a Syrian general who needs healing because he has leprosy. He goes to Elisha, and Elisha says, dip seven times in the Jordan River, and Naaman gets really upset. You can read the story in 2 Kings. Naaman gets really upset. And his officers calm him down and they say, just do it. If he would have asked you to do something crazy, you would have done it anyway. So Naaman goes, he dips seven times in the Jordan River and he's healed. He comes to Elisha and he says, I'm healed. Can I do anything for you? And Elisha says, no. And then what does Naaman do? What does he do? He says, he's got this weird request for Elisha. Can I take dirt? Can I take this dirt from this land, pack it on my donkeys, and bring it home with me? Why? 
because he understood that that place, the dirt that he was standing on was under the rule of Yahweh the Most High. He understood that in his time and in his period, where he brought that dirt, the dominion of God would go. And the amazing part is that the Bible says in the New Testament that we are the temple of God, that we are the place where God resides, where you and I walk is kingdom territory. The places that our feet go bring the presence of God with them. We don't have to walk in fear. We don't have to walk in dread in our life. We don't have to walk worrying about what's going to happen to us spiritually. We can walk under the authority of the Most High God. The blood of Jesus walks with us wherever we go. And on this earth, there is no, we read it as we started, Everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ. The plan of God was to come in human form, flesh and blood, die on a cross, and re-inherit his rule and authority on the earth. Man, there's some amazing stories. Why did Jesus send out 70? Some Bibles say 72 on a mission trip. The same number of nations that was disinherited by God. Why did he send out that many? To rule and reign, to bring the authority of God back to the earth. Acts chapter 2. Did you know that every one of those nations represented when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, these men are speaking in other tongues. There's this crazy stuff that's going on in Jerusalem. Every one of those nations that were disinherited are there in Jerusalem. God is looking to reclaim the earth. And Paul is saying, look, get your head out of your stuff and get it on God because I have a calling for your life that's greater than the nonsense you're dealing with. The stuff that you're choosing to engage in, the sin, the pornography, the anger, the hatred, the lust, the lying, whatever it is, I've got something greater for you. I'm calling you as my sons and daughters to walk on this earth in authority. You don't need to be afraid. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.